You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's first lesson of our financial freedom module, God's plan for your money. God's plan involves the whole of our lives, spirit, soul and body. Philip Edwards will explain how our money plays a big part in the plans God has for each one of us. We hope you enjoy today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome back to Arise Academy, uh, our spring term 2023. Uh, We've got some exciting modules to uh, look at this term and in the uh, second term we'll have the uh, students again presenting talks as we did last year. We're doing a module on financial freedom. Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your precious word and the truth, Lord, of your word. As we study it, we have a a better and a deeper understanding of you and your great love, and that affects our lives. As we open up this subject regarding money, which is vital and important to every one of our lives, we pray you'll reveal truth to us, remind us perhaps of things that we have forgotten, and uh, just illuminate our understanding and free us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's called the course Financial Freedom. It's not called How to Escape Poverty, and it's not called How to Become Rich. Uh, You can get courses that are similar to that, but this is not what this course is about. It's about freedom related to money. I believe we live in a world where spiritual forces are acting against us all the time. In this area of money and finances, I think two have come together to, as it were, work together against the church. I think the spirit of fear and what the Bible calls the spirit of mammon, the spirit of money, they come together and join forces to fight against the people of God the people of God being able to receive the grace of generosity, thus freely being able to invest money, uh, give money, be gracious with money, which in turn limits the work of God in the world. In this module, we will discover what it means to live with freedom, financial freedom. It has nothing to do with having money, or not having money. Uh, I've discovered that people with money are sometimes very bound with the money that they have. They're in bondage to the money. Uh, Also, I discovered that there are people with no money who are bound to the fact that they are in poverty. There's lack. And so this course has nothing to do with whether you've got money or or you haven't got money. Uh, Some people for some reason, God just blesses them with money and God bless them. Other people, they're not so fortunate in life and they have less money. But whether we've got a lot or a moderate amount, we can all be financially free. We needn't be in bondage to this spirit of mammon. 
Jesus talks about both, actually. In Matthew 19 and 24, it says this, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's scary, isn't it? It's almost saying rich people struggle to even get into the kingdom of God. Well, I wouldn't want that. I'm glad that it was easy for me to come into the kingdom and God wants it easy for everyone, but obviously people who are wealthy, they struggle. That's what Jesus said. In Matthew 6 and 33, he says the opposite thing. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So what he's saying is, uh, if you don't have a lot of money, be sure that you first seek the kingdom, seek righteousness and all these things that you need, they will be added to you. If you're worrying all the time that you haven't got this and you haven't got that, what you're not doing is seeking righteousness. You're not seeking the kingdom. You're in fact seeking money or seeking something to supply or meet your needs. So this module where we'll be discussing money uh, uh, lesson after lesson, as it were, it's not about how to get rich or, or it's not about how to, to handle poverty so much. It's more about living free, whether you're blessed with a lot or you have a moderate amount. In this first lesson uh, before the break, I'll be talking about God has a plan for your money. He has a plan for your money in your life. We need to understand what that plan is and get on board with God's plan. In the second lesson, we'll be looking more about the character of God, that God is a giver and not a getter. Due to the fall, we become getters, grabbers, and not givers. Our nature has changed, and through salvation, our nature can be turned again to, to be back to what God intended us to be. God's plan for your money then. Handling money according to God's word. God has so much to say on it. There's something like 30 odd parables. Uh, more than half of them are related to money in some way or another. It's why? Because when Jesus spoke parables, he just took things that he saw and he taught off the back of these things all the time. He might see a, a farmer in a field or he might see a woman sweeping or he might see something. And it was like teaching that was just on the spur of the moment. It, it made the point. Of course, money was important to people's lives, always has been all the time. And so there were many parables where he spoke about money, people not having money, people did with money, and it captured people's imagination. I would say talking about money is one of those sexy subjects. A sexy subject, I mean, it doesn't get lost in theology, but everyone's interested in it because we deal with it every day. You can't ignore it. It's there. It's in your face. You have to think about it. You're forced to think about it all the time. Not that we're obsessed by it, but we have to think about it. Handling money then according to God's word. People all over the world die thousands, sometimes millions of people due to famine and things like that. Usually this famine is not because there's not enough food in the world. There is plenty. God has provided plenty of food for everybody. But those who are in charge, they handle the money and things related to it very badly. 
they're corrupt often, they're cheated, they're greedy, and so millions of people starve to death as a result of it. Also, thousands of people go to court each year because they fall into debt. In the UK, you can't go to prison if you get into debt. You might be relieved to know that. Uh, there are no more debtors' prisons. But you can go bankrupt, which is a very dodgy place to get into because finances are so important to our lives. And if you, you get it in, into a place of bankruptcy, you're not free to do exactly what you would like to do. Millions struggle each year simply to make ends meet. I wonder how many divorces there are as a result of the struggle that couples have with money, the arguments that come out of money. It's a struggle for so many. As I'm sharing this, you might be one of these. As you're listening to this, you might think, yeah, that sounds like me. We struggle. Uh, we get ourselves into debt. Or, on the other hand, you might be comfortable and well off. You've got no real financial worries, as it were. Everything gets paid, all your bills get paid. You have a reasonable amount that you can give and be generous to poor people or to give to the church and so forth. You might have a nice home and a holiday or several holidays a year. So you think, I'm comfortable. I would say to you, whether you're struggling or whether you're succeeding, you need to face this question. Are you handling your money according to God's word? And you go, well, I haven't really given it a lot of thought. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening because you're going to have to give it some thought as we uh, open up this passage together or the different passages of scripture. This is the question that we'll seek to answer. Am I handling the money that God is blessing me with according to God's will? You may have an idea that somehow um, money has nothing to do with my life with God. My life with God is a spiritual life. Primarily, it is. But that doesn't separate, uh, or he doesn't separate us from our possessions or our body, our soul. He saves us completely as whole people. Often we talk about things being sacred and secular. We have this sacred life, which is all about God and worship and prayer, and then we have this secular life, which is about the world. Well, that doesn't hold up in Scripture. You've got one life before God, whether you're living it in the world or in the church, at home or in a prayer meeting, it's all one. It's one life. And all that you are and all that you have is God's, in that you give yourself to him, so everything becomes God's. You say, my car is God's, uh, my house is God's. Well, it's part of you, it's part of who you are, and so God, God receives you all wholly as you are, and therefore he has a plan. As much as he has a plan for your life, he has a plan for your bank balance and the money that you have. This is then the biblical view. In this contemporary culture that we find ourselves in, money plays really a vital part in all of our lives. In fact, too much, I think, sometimes. It's in everything. How did you get here tonight? Did you walk? Come by bike? 
have, have a car, you're driving a nice car, or an old jalopy? Did you get on the train or a bus? All of these things you see, even your mode of transport, can be related to how much money you have. The clothes that you're wearing, are they just uh, cheap second-hand clothes or have you invested more in your clothing? And so even the very clothes you wear, the meal that you had before you came here this evening, I presume you had a meal, was it expensive or was it cheap? Was it something that you had to be very careful about when you thought about buying it? When you go home tonight, the house, or the room or the flat that you enter into, what will the furniture be like? How comfortable is your bed? Well, you see, it's everywhere, isn't it? You can't escape it. It's, it's in every sphere of our life. And it affects us really, really deeply. I would suggest to you then, if God doesn't have a plan for our money, then a major part of our life is not under his control because it plays a major part in our life, a bigger part than we would give credit to. If you're not handling your finances in line with God's plan, then the whole of your life can be somewhat out of joint. You're a Christian, uh, living the Christian life, but somehow this money that you have has nothing to do with God. It's, it's secular, it's not sacred, it's different, it's, it's for me to deal with, not for God. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's what, not what I'll be teaching over the next few weeks. God has a perfect plan for your life. I don't mean by that this perfect way of living or walking with God and if you get it wrong you're out, out of this perfect will. I, I don't believe that. But he has a mature perfect will. I'll direct you to the passage of scripture in Romans chapter 12 uh, verses 1 and 2. He says this, at the end of a, a, a long dialogue he starts in Romans chapter 1 with the word therefore in other words, on the basis of everything you've read already, this is how I want you to think about living your Christian life. Therefore, he says, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is interesting. Notice that offering your body the material is as much a spiritual act of worship as offering your spirit or your praise or your worship. So even deciding to come tonight, getting up from your chair, putting your coat on and making your way here and presenting yourself, it just that was a spiritual act of worship. You said, God, I am putting you first. I'm coming. It, it in itself was a spiritual act of worship. So being spiritual includes everything pertaining to the material world, to your body. God takes you holy and everything you have. Present yourself and all you are and all you have as a living sacrifice to God. He then goes on to say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test 
and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. It appears from this verse, the second part of the verse, that uh, the will of God is an unfolding process. He talks about it being good, being pleasing, and being perfect. What, what does he mean? He means that when we start to perceive the will of God, when we come to Christ and when we receive him as our saviour, we step into this uh, adventurous life, this uh, walk along a road where we discover the kingdom of God. As we read the scriptures and we perceive what God is trying to say to us, trying to renew our minds, we perceive that it's good. We go, this is good. It's good to forgive people. It's, it's good to, uh, to be patient with people. It's good to uh, apply Christian principles. It feels good what I'm doing. I enjoy my life more that I'm adopting these principles. So it's good. And then as we move on, we find that we perceive that it's pleasing to do these things. It moves from just being good to something much more. We want to embrace it. We read of something, we learn of something, and we think, I'm going to embrace this. And as we do, we find that life is even more pleasing. Of course, the third stage is what he talks about, good, pleasing, moving on to perfection. We seek to apply the will of God to everything in our lives, completely in our lives. And we step into the perfect will of God. Perfect not in that you get everything right, but you've moved on to maturity. You don't challenge everything that God has said. You don't listen to the sermon and say, oh, think about that, I'm not quite sure about that. That's the struggle that we have sometimes with the will of God for our lives. We go, well, I can't argue with it, it's clear to me, I just need to conform to it. And of course we embrace it and we move on with him. Finding this perfect will of God then, Paul suggests there's two things we have to do. First, he says, you have to offer your body as a living sacrifice. You will never move on to know God's perfect will for your life until you surrender everything to him. We can't do that at first. I appreciate that as Christians. We've, we've run our lives for so long. We've run everything. And we come to him and we, we're quite prepared to offer over things, especially the unpleasant things that we want him to change. We offer these over. And in time, we end up offering everything. He says, no, if you want to know my perfect will in the Christian's life, you have to submit it all. You have to surrender it all to me and then you will understand it. He doesn't hold off until we do it all, but it's progressive, you understand. It's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect, and then we will understand what it is. He's comparing this offering ourselves to God, uh, comparing it with the sacrifice in the Old Testament. Remember when a lamb was taken and killed and put on the altar, the lamb was given wholly unto God. It was completely given unto God. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the lamb was dead and we're alive. Ah, that's a bit more painful because it would be better if we were dead to sacrifice ourselves and give ourselves. We wouldn't have to worry about it. But we're alive when we give ourselves to God and part of us reacts to what God is requiring of us. This is, I don't want to do this. 
this is difficult for me to do. And one of the areas that people find difficult is this whole area with money. This is difficult for me to do. I can't just surrender it all, as it were, to what God wants. The second thing that help us, or is essential to finding God's will, is that we allow God to transform our minds. It says, being transformed by the renewal of our mind. What does that mean? It means learning to think the way that God thinks. Wow, I didn't think Christianity meant that. I have to be thinking like God, talking like God, acting like God. Yes, yes, it wasn't some handout that he gave you that could make you a little bit better, that somehow would get you into heaven and you, you would escape hell. No, this salvation is bigger than you could ever imagine. It is the transformation of a person that he might have the very mind of Christ, the very mind of God, that is. We might think like he thinks. We might be transformed to be like him. God, that's a tall order. And of course God knows that. So he sends his Holy Spirit into us to work from the inside out, as it were. He enables you to change so you think like God. Transforming in your thinking. Your value systems change. We call them the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, their values in our lives, our standards start to change. Our standards, when we considered it, were probably quite low, but now God has made them quite high. And you're thinking, whoa, what's the standard? Well, actually, the standard is Christ. Can't you make it a bit lower? No, I can't. This is it. Don't worry. It's pressing on to that point where you reach this standard and your priorities change what's the most important thing to you as we want to know the perfect will of God as we grow in him our priorities start to change only as your mind is renewed will you know God's will for your life This money that we have, the money that you possess, the money that you have in your account, in your pocket, in the bank, in your investments, don't belittle it. Don't think it unspiritual or unimportant. Don't estimate or underestimate the value of that money. It's precious. I like those early verses in Genesis where he tells them where they can find gold. You ever thought that interesting? It's like, why have you told us this? You know, why didn't you tell us where we could find shells or where we could find oil or aluminium? Oh no, he says, you can find gold in that valley. Why? Because the plan of God always from the beginning was that money would play a part. And it would play a big part. And it would become very much about who we were and how we lived our lives, and our whole attitude towards it would be important to God. It is so vital. We mustn't push it aside. We must deal with it. Your money then, it represents you in many ways. It represents things about you. It represents the time that you have in your life. 
It represents the strength you have in your body, the talents that you have, the giftings and the abilities. And fourthly, for some, it represents the inheritance that they have received. You might be the sort of person that's had a really elaborate education, went to a top school, a great university, or even just a university. People invested in you, you invested lots of time in studying, and your parents invested, they sacrificed so you could get to that position. The money that you earn now, that you hold in your hand because of this investment of time and energy and the investment from your parents, it's represented in that money, isn't it? I, uh, Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister now, he would say, and I've heard him say it more than once, he said, I stand in this position and I'm in this very privileged position because of what my parents sacrificed for me to get to this position. This wealth that I have, this privilege that I have, he said, it cost them something. They were chemists, I believe, pharmacists, and they put their son's education as a priority, and so their hard work, their endeavour, it is now represented by what he holds in his hand, the wealth that he holds. Think of all the hard work and the effort made by the parents, the sacrifices they made to give him the education, the hard work that he put into it. So our money that we hold represents that. Maybe you're not the sort of person that had this wonderful education, but you're talented. You have an ability, and the money you earn is the result of your talent or your ability. It could be something ordinary, um, a skill that you've got, a plumber, an electrician, a hairdresser, uh, a teacher, or whatever. You've learned skills, and you've practiced them again and again and again, and, and all of a sudden you're very good at it. And the money you earn represents the hours that you have put in to learning these skills, to practicing these skills. The strength that you have, the talents that you have, it is represented by the money that you have. You might be a third category of person who hasn't got a skill or an ability or a talent in that way, but you get up every day and you work eight hours a day, five days a week, 40 hours a week, and at the end of the week you have this sum of money. It represents the hours, the effort that you made. It is your life that is the sum total of all those hours you worked. It's here in your hands. It's your paycheck. It's what you're holding. Now, what do you do with this? Do you just waste it? Do you throw it away on, on nonsense? Or do you invest it in something that's precious or special or important? Spending it on your family doing the best uh, for not wasting it. See, sometimes we can just take the money and waste it, and what you've wasted is your life, or the life of your parents and their investment. So we have to see money as something more than, oh, it's just this unnecessarily evil that I never seem to have enough of, or I've got too much of, or whatever the case may be. That's not the way to look at money. Money is something that represents your life, your skills, your ability. And what you do with that money is of vital importance, both to you and to God. 
You must invest it in good and not bad. God's desire, I believe, is that we enjoy success in life. And um, there's a verse in uh, 3 John uh, 2 and verse 2. Some people have discarded this verse uh, and said, well, it's only a salutation, uh, pay no attention to it. I don't sort of agree with that. I don't think you can throw any verse away in the Bible. I think the Holy Spirit has written it through somebody else. I appreciate that. So we need to give it, uh, you know, just review and, and thinking, what is the Holy Spirit saying here? He says this, and you'll understand why some people just say it's a salutation. He said, dear friends, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that, may all, and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Well, you can understand how they say, oh, that, that, you can just go, go over that. That's just, that's just a greeting from at the beginning of the letter. You mustn't do that with scripture. <laughs> Sometimes just a word is so important. Just two words or three words that string together, the Holy Spirit has put them there specially. So don't write off this, I'd believe, as a salutation. He says, he says there are three areas of our life that God wants us to be prosperous in, to enjoy, to be successful in. He talks about the soul. He talks about your physical health. I pray that you may enjoy good health. He talks generally. He says, and that all may go well with you, as even your soul is getting along well. So God's, God's desire, if the Holy Spirit has written this, and we have no reason to believe he hasn't through John's writing, that the desire of God is that we would be blessed in every area of our life. God doesn't want us to fail. He doesn't want us to be defeated or frustrated. And he doesn't want us to live in poverty. He wants to supply all of our needs. Now we're going to see as we go along, uh, one's needs and one's wants are two different things. And God is, is only too ready to supply every need that you have. The Bible has, has a definition for poverty. It might not be our definition of poverty, but the Bible de definitely has one. And we will discover what that is. God wants good things for us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to enjoy success in our soul, in our general being, and in our physical health. In this section after the break, what we're going to do is we're going to consider the very nature of God. We're going to obviously look at the, the fact that he's a triune God. He has three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But another vastly, I can't say more interesting thing than that, is the fact that God is also love. I haven't worked out what this means. It means more than that God loves. <laughs> no, not that God loves. He does love, but he is love. In essence, that's what he is. If you meet him or his son, you say, I've just met the personification of love and all that that is. He's not just loving me, he is love in a person. 
So throughout all eternity, what we see is the three persons of the Godhead just bathed in this fellowship of love. The Father for the Son, the Son for the Spirit, the Spirit for the Father. There's just love that emanates. They're bathed in the whole thing. And this love that we're going to look at and examine is special. We know there's two words in the New Testament, Greek words for love. There's this word philio, which means an affection between people. It's almost like natural love, philio love. My name is Philip. It's a Greek word. It's made of the word phil, which means love, and ip. Well, you don't need to know what ip is, but a nip is a horse. Apparently, I'm supposed to love horses. Well, if I love horses, I mean, I love God and I love people and I, I love the things of God. I suppose God created horses, so I better love horses as well. But I have no real affinity towards horses, even though my name might say it. So filio is this affectionate one would have for another. It's like a natural love. But then we read of another word in the New Testament. It's called agape. And it refers to the love that God has. It's different from filio. And we know that when we become Christians, this agape love, it becomes available to us. Of course, we receive it by faith and growing up in God, and it becomes part of who we are. It's a love that's sacrificial is the most important thing about it. For God so loved that he gave. It's sacrificial. It's also a love that is self-giving. It gives in self away all the time. God is always giving everything. Everything that God has, he gives it and gives it and gives it. That's the nature of God. We are made after his nature, his image. Christ has entered into us. So the most natural thing that we're going to find that Christians become are agape Christians self-giving Christians, self-sacrificing Christians. We read also about God, that God created the whole universe. Out of the whole universe, he creates a planet called Earth. On this planet Earth, he creates men and women. And he says that men and women are the pinnacle of his creation. We have to stop there for a minute. Of all that he's made, of this tremendous world that he's made, he made you and me, and we apparently are the pinnacle of his creation. We are the ultimate of the whole creation in the universe, made after his image. Sometimes you've just got to stop sometimes. Bother to sit down and think about, what does this really mean? In Psalm 8 and 5, he says, you, this is the psalmist talking to God, he said, you made him, speaking about man, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, some translators really struggle with this verse. They say the heavenly beings are the angels, that he made us a little lower than the angels. They, they couldn't quite interpret it as it said. In fact, it isn't the heavenly beings refer to God himself. He didn't make us a little lower than the angels. We were made 
as the pinnacle of God's creation. Therefore, we must be above the angels. Otherwise, we wouldn't be the pinnacle. The angels would be the pinnacle and we would be beneath them. But we are the pinnacle of his creation. Therefore, we were made just a little lower than God. Just a little lower than God. When Jesus walked on the earth, he assumed the position of being a little lower than God, didn't he? He submitted himself to the Father, and yet he had co-equality with him. We have co-equality with Christ. I don't say we have co-equality with God because you might shut the Bible school down if I said something like that. But we have co-equality with Christ because that's what it says. But you know what I'm sneakingly trying to say here. God has lifted us to a position that he created us just a little bit lower than himself. But then sent Christ that we might live with him. We have been made to reflect his glory. Nothing else, no one else can reflect his glory, but we can. Also, we've been made to receive this wonderful, agape, sacrificial, self-giving love. That, no pressure, no on you now, no pressure. We have been created then to receive the very glory of God in our lives, to be, to be recipients of the wonderful love of God, and then to move into the world and manifest God in his creation. That's what he made us to do. Oh, you say, well, that'll all happen one day. It'd be late one, it'd be too late one day, wouldn't it? When he's finished and brought the world to an end, and when God comes and Christ comes, it'll be, all be obvious then. But we need to grasp hold of it. It needs to be obvious now that we reflect his glory and manifest his love in the world. This nature of God that is a giver, a giver, and not a getter. After the break, we'll see how much of a giver God is. Welcome back. I finished the last uh, lesson with the idea that we would think something of the nature of God, and I was just laying the foundation there for saying that God is a giver and not a getter. And we, as the pinnacle of his creation, made to reflect him, made to be recipients of his love, when we're fully persuaded, when we have grown on into perfection, we too will be givers, completely givers. It says about God in the beginning that he made a good world, Remember in that first chapter, he made this and it was good and that and it was good and the next thing and it was good. So everything he put his hands to obviously is good, it's perfect, it's better than good. But he said it was good, so the world he makes is a good world. It, then it says in Genesis 1.11 that God made a world of plenty. He said, let the world produce, in uh, Genesis 1.11, let the world produce in accordance to its various kinds. So whether it was trees or plants or animals, the idea that it would have seed in it, that there would be plenty, plenty. So God made a plentiful world. It says in Genesis 1.28 that God blessed mankind. 
regarding Adam and Eve, it says that God blessed them. Be fruitful, he said, and increase in numbers. And uh, God gave all of this to Adam and Eve after he created this wonderful planet, this plentiful planet. He said, it's yours. I give it all to you. He was the wealthiest man, the only man, and yet he possessed the whole world. God had given it to him. God blessed them. Be fruitful, he said, increase in number. Then God said, I give you everything. Plants, trees, beasts, fields, I give it all to you. Everything that has breath in it, I, God, give this all to you. We see there in the very first chapter then of Genesis, the generous nature of God. God is a giver. He's not a getter. Then we read in John, coming into the New Testament, 17 and 24. Listen what it says. Jesus uh, speaking to his father. He says, Father, I want those that you have given me. He's already speaking about God giving us to Jesus. We, we come to worship God and we are God's creation and yet he gives us to Jesus. Father, I want those that you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me. What else could God give away? He gives his glory. He gives the world. He gives us who have put faith in him, his people. He gives us to the Lord Jesus that you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Before anything ever was, it was in the heart of God. Remember, God is love. And therefore, this love is self-giving, is sacrificial. There is something about God that he gives everything away. He doesn't need anything, and yet everything he creates, he gives away. And in John 3.16, this verse we all know so well, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God gives us to Jesus... But he has given Jesus to us. See, he has nothing else. His glory, his son, his creation, his world, he gives it all away. He possesses nothing for himself. Then we come, unfortunately, to Genesis chapter 3. And we read about the awful fall of Adam and Eve, where the serpent seduces Eve to disobey God. Perhaps men like to put the blame on the woman, but it's just equally man's problem. God said it's your problem. Together, you've done this together. They plunge themselves and the world into ruin. He plunged the world into ruin? Of course, because God had given the world to them. So as they fell, everything about them and what they owned and possessed, it fell as well. It all went together because God had no longer had control over it. He had given it to them and it went into ruin. The sin of Adam and Eve was so devastating, it affected everything that they possessed and owned. It possessed, they possessed the planet and so it affected the whole of the planet. It says this in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. 
To God, he, uh, sorry, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. See, as a result of his sin, the ground becomes cursed. He had given it to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The point is the earth could no longer yield all the produce that we read about in chapter one. It was to produce and produce and produce. But once sin entered and the curse came upon it, even the ground could not yield the, the fruit or the trees or anything. And, and we know what happened to the animals as well. They became cursed. Terrible. It says in Genesis 4 and 12, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. Even the ground became mean. Even the ground became selfish, as it were, as a result of the curse of sin. Well, if the ground did, so did Adam and Eve, and so did their children. They became mean as well. It says in uh, Romans 8 and 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Of course, it was by the will of Adam. He brought the whole planet, as it were, under a curse, brought into frustration. Man fell and took the whole of creation <coughs> with him. As we read on through the scriptures, we find how this affected man. He became greedy. It tells us in Ephesians 4 and 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continuing lust for more. More. It's like I must get more evil, more vile, more. I must... I must be more depraved, as it were. Sometimes we look at the world and we think, can it get any worse? Well, there is a bottom line, I believe, that God has established, but man will push and push and push in his greed for more evil, apparently. Man becomes covetous, it says in Psalm 10 and verse 3. He boasts in the cravings of his heart he blesses the greedy and he reviles the Lord. He boasts in the cravings of his heart, the things that he wants. He becomes a thief in Micah 2 and 2. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. So what was this nature that would have been created in Adam and Eve, which was one of generosity and giving, would have been the very nature of God, is become greedy and covetous and thieving. It becomes unequal. It says in Proverbs 10 and 15, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. 
and man becomes unjust as well in Amos 5.11. You trample on the poor, he said, and you force him to give you, to, for him to give you his grain. Terrible. What has humankind become? Very different from what God intended. We've become a greedy world, a covetous world, a thieving world. And this is the world we've grown up in. We didn't choose to grow up in a world like that. God didn't want that sort of world for us, but we've grown up in it and we're thinking, oh, I'm immune from all of that. You're not, because the world you grew up in is that sort of world and it has affected you. And when we come to Christ and he renews our mind, all these attitudes and these things, they don't just disappear. We have to get rid of them. We take them off. We have to shed ourselves of these different attitudes that have come upon us. Our contemporary culture has built its economy on things people are conditioned to want. The things that they need. The things that they must have. <laughs> Much of what we have today didn't exist one or two generations ago. If a generation is 25 years and you've lived two generations, you would know exactly what I mean. Just ordinary things that we just take for granted today. Uh, everything. Central heating, widescreen TVs, dishwashers, two cars per family, whatever it is. We have become so used to this. It is like, well, this is normal. I must have this. God has promised to provide for our needs, but not for the things that we want all the time. We come under advertising pressure. Isn't it amazing? You think, oh, no, I can resist this. Except that when you think of something, the advert comes back, doesn't it? It's so subtle, you see. It's designed to, to dominate or to enter into your mind somehow. Sometimes I look and think, what a terrible advert, but somehow it's got me. How did such a terrible advert capture me? I don't understand that. And peer pressure. Peer pressure is not pressure that people put on you. It's pressure that you put on yourself because you look at your peers and you think, they've got it, I should have it, or I want it, or their life is better because they have it. Perhaps I should have one of those as well. Solomon said something of the getting of books, or the reading of books, or the getting of knowledge, there is no end. But it's equally true of the getting of things, there is no end. There's always something else that we can possess and have to make our life richer, or fuller, or better. It starts possibly in childhood, doesn't it? You know, kids, they promise so much. There's nothing wrong with parents promising children things, but it's like they rip the paper off to rip the paper off the next one and the next one and it's, it's like, oh, and they've forgotten what they've even got. It's just piled up there behind them. And we teach them, you see, to be greedy and to covet. We don't mean to do it and we have enough money to do that and yes, we create that. I'm sure for some people, life's a game. It's like who has the most at the end wins. What nonsense. They've probably lost everything to think they've won. 
my attack on greed is not a call for impoverishment, please. I know it sounds like it. Like, I just want you to go around with paupers and not buy anything and buy everything secondhand and have no money. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm attacking is greed. Those things that came in due to the fall, this covetousness, this thieving, this greed, this, this wanting, this... There's nothing wrong to move with society and buy the things that society has. Of course it isn't. I have a dishwasher and a widescreen TV. I used to have two cars, but now we only have one. Uh, we buy these things, but it's not greed. I understand we move on and we thank God for every appliance that helps us, but we have to catch ourselves. Is it greed that's working here? That I must have this thing. Remember, the whole world, it says in John, is under the control of the evil one. It still is. And so he poisons us with this. It's very subtle. And yet it's enough sometimes to rob, rob the church of the funding, perhaps of the finances that should be invested in the kingdom for the proclamation. It robs the church of the ability to look after the poor and needy in the way that it should. I mean, if the church took it upon itself to look after the, the needy in its community, it probably wouldn't need social services if the truth were known, if there were sufficient numbers, they could take it on themselves. And that's probably something of what God would desire for us to do. We've grown up then in a greedy, materialistic, get it world. We must be appreciate that. Why is our attitude to money so important? Your attitude to money is the same as your attitude towards God. Hang on, better explain this one to me, just think that through. My attitude towards money could be the same as my attitude towards God. Listen what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 24. No one can serve two masters, he says. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, we have a choice, Jesus says. You can't, you can't serve them both. Are you serving me? Are you trusting in me? Are you looking to me? Am I your source of supply? Am I the one who looks after you? Am I the one who cares for you? Am I the one who keeps you? Or... Have you put your trust in the money that you have accumulated? Are you looking to the money that you have to look after you, to, to maybe make life more comfortable to you, to, to somehow uh, take the place of God? Which master is looking after you? Is it the money or is it God? See, if you have no money, it's got to be God, isn't it? That makes it simple. That's why it's hard for rich people to enter into the kingdom because they have this and they, can, they put their dependence on this and they can't shift it onto God from this. Remember that young rich man who came to Jesus? He was sincere. I really believe he was sincere. And he said, I've done all this. How can I assure myself I'm going to heaven. 
And because Jesus says, see this wealth you have? This is what's stopping you. Get rid of this. It is a blockage to you. Get rid of this and then you can enter in. And it says that he went away sad. And it says a lovely thing about Jesus. He says that Jesus loved him. Even though this man didn't want to know what Jesus said, rejected what Jesus said, Jesus wasn't taken aback or upset. He loved him just the same. It's this agape love I was talking about. The ability to love even when one is rejected. This verse that we looked at in Matthew, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting, if you look the verse up in your Bible, the, the word money is written with a capital M. That's a bit odd, isn't it? Why would it use a capital M? You would think money would just be like money. God and money. No, he's making the point that this money is big and important. That's why it's written with a capital M. Almost like uh, in a parallel with God. God or money? It's important. What determines your plans? Is it the word of God or how much is in your bank account? Often we used to do mission trips and advertise them in our church. And we used to say, oh, we're going to, um, I don't know, it'd be somewhere exotic like Tanzania or Sri Lanka or somewhere, you know, very appealing. People say, yes, mission, two weeks. And uh, many people would come and say, I really want to come, but I don't know if I'll have enough money. And the thought struck me, what's that got to do with anything? The choice is, do you want to come? Yes or no? If it's yes, well, you want it to fall in line with what God wants, so and God is not going to be opposed to you discovering more about himself or stepping out into the mission field. But it was always on the proviso, but I haven't got enough money. It was the money that was dictating to them whether they should go or not go. And, say, and so I used to say to them, no, 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 you decide whether you want to go or not. Believe God that somehow when the time comes, the money will be there to do it. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. See, are you looking to money or to God? Well, those people who said, I can't go, the money was making the decision in their lives. It wasn't God's decision. It was the money. Now, I'm not foolish. A day comes when you've got to give the organiser of the trip the money for the airfare. If it's not there, I appreciate it. You can't go. I understand that. But you mustn't let the fact that you haven't got the money be the deciding factor now. The deciding factor now is, God, do you want me to go? And yes. And if you're walking towards it, believing it, very few people didn't come up with the money because they didn't allow the money to be the deciding factor in their lives. That applies to everything. You don't do things because you've got the money. You do things because you believe that's what God wants you to do. Money or no money. 
Financial freedom is the freedom to walk with God whether you've got it or you haven't got it. Even if you've got enough money to do 10 missions, if you have a sense that God is saying, don't go, don't go, please don't go. Don't let the fact that you've got the money mean, oh, I can go if I want to. But if you haven't got the money, don't let that be the deciding factor either. Let God be the decider in this. Jesus is not teaching us to despise or hate money. He told us that gold is in them, their hills. He told us that. Therefore, he doesn't despise it. He pointed it out to us. What we're dealing with is this satanic force that enslaves men and women through the spirit of mammon, this spirit of fear, this spirit of money that I was speaking about that I think work together against the Christian, against the body of Christ, and against so many people. We must make a choice. It's really a question of priorities. God must come first. God is above everything. Money does not decide my future. Money does not decide where I live or what I do. I pray and I get a leading from the Lord and we go in that direction, whether I have it or whether I don't have it, and I will trust the Lord because the Lord knows what I have and don't have. If it's in his will, he will provide for it. What God orders, he pays for. If I invite you out for dinner, I don't expect you to pay for it. I will pay for it, okay? And vice versa, if you invite me, I expect you to pay for it as well. Okay? That's the way it is. And that's the way it is with God. What he orders, he pays for. A couple more principles here relating to money. It says, the first principle is we first seek the kingdom of God. Matthew 6 and 33, he says this, and we've looked at this verse already. But he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness... And all these things will be given to you as well. It's a very simple, short verse. But I must say, it's been a real principle in my life for a long, long time. My attitude is to seek righteousness, to, to, to live in his kingdom, to absorb his truth, to, to know his understanding. And whatever I need, he knows my needs. He even says, I know what you need before you even mention it. So he knows what it is. And as I'm focused then on the kingdom, on righteousness, I just expect these things to come. Now, it's not magic. It doesn't drop from the sky. I'm, I'm not saying it does. It isn't always checks that are posted through the door. Sometimes God will provide a job or a promotion or something God provides. And so even though you're doing it, God often meets needs in very natural ways. <laughs> Talking to someone just recently, and um, he's given up everything to serve the Lord. And uh, this person came along and gave him quite a large sum of money, something like £5,000. And uh, he wanted to give it back. Uh, I never said anything to him. I thought, no, what are you doing? You're seeking the kingdom. You're pursuing righteousness. And then God says, listen, you don't know what's coming down the road, but you're going to need this. And so he supplies even before he knows. But his, his attitude was, I don't, I don't want this. You might not want it, but God knows you need it. 
And so this is my provision. So God makes provision if we're focused. This is the summation of these thoughts. Let me read it to you. Jesus will not say we have to be without these things, but he says we must not put these things first. We must commit ourselves to God's kingdom and his purposes. If we do not run after money and make it our God, but serve the true God and seek his kingdom and righteousness, then God will see to it that all the material and financial things we need are added to us. Pursuing money is such an awful strain and leads to so much frustration. If you have followed the right course in your life, then the money will be added to you. Sometimes your faith will be tested. Sometimes you'll have to deny yourself things that the world esteems very highly. But God is totally faithful. It doesn't always come instantly or even before you need it. But just wait patiently and see the supply of God. There's nothing better than a testimony of the, the supply of God in your life. I feel sorry for rich people. Well, not too much, but I feel sorry for rich people in that they don't have those testimonies of them. Or perhaps they do. Perhaps they're believing for a lot more money than I would even imagine, and they have those testimonies. So it's, it's all relative, but it's the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's the same thing. The principle then of seeking first his kingdom. The second principle is putting God first, which is a thought that's continual throughout the whole of the Bible. It says in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, it says, honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Well, we don't have barns and vats these days, but we understand what he's getting at. Every one of your material needs, he says, will be met. But we must honour God first. God gets the first. God will only ever be first. He is preeminent in everything, in our thought, in our word, in our actions, and in everything. If we put things before God, it's idolatry. He says, if you put me first, it, things will overflow into your life. Every need that you have will be met. I will supply those needs. I once remember having a very distorted idea of this verse. I think it was distorted. I just thought, if I did this, I would be wealthy. Lots of wealth would come. Well, I lived through this Christian life by these principles and a great amount of wealth didn't come into my life. But then I was just musing one day about this and God is saying, Philip, don't you see that the portals have been open all of your life? That everything you have ever needed, whether it was paying for this for your son at university or doing this or doing that, didn't you see that it came all the time, it just kept coming and coming. If there was no need, nothing came. But for every need that arose, it came. And I will continue doing that. So this thing about the portals of heaven opening and we'll have so much money, we'll just get lost in it, all in the sea of money. I don't think it meant that at all. What it meant was, as we kept walking by faith, God would never stop supplying every need 
that we had in our lives. See, that's what financial freedom is. The freedom of never worrying. Not having a penny, but never worrying. This assurance that God will supply. Sometimes, I'm cheeky when I do this, sometimes I think Christians need to just give everything away. Just give it all away. And put it to the test. You go, oh, hang on a minute, Phil. This is a bit drastic. Okay. Some churches do this, don't they? They get to the end of a financial year, and whatever they got surplus, they just give it away. They don't keep it for the next year. They think, well, we'll start again. We'll give it all away. Obviously, they have to pay their bills ongoing. But anything surplus to requirements, give it all away and start again. Give it all away and start again. Just see if God will not do the things that he say he'll do. Oh, but I'm a little bit radical, and I, from time to time. Okay. <clears throat> As I said, putting money before God is idolatry. Well, obviously it would be if God is there and we put something in front of God, we're making an idol of whatever it is that we place in front of him. Colossians tells us this. Colossians 3 and 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. When you seek money before God, when you place the decisions in your life, when you make decisions based on the fact of how much money you've got, as opposed to what God is saying, it's idolatry. Because we're putting money before God, we must never do it. We read, we shall have no other gods before him. Oh, I wonder how many people in this nation of ours has made money an idol in their lives. At first. Not that they clamour after it, but God is definitely behind it, if he's there at all. Money is this deciding factor. It is this that we work for. It is this that we need. It is this that cares for us. It is this that we are dependent upon. No, it's not. God is here. And if, and if we need this, God will supply the money that we need. I talked about pursuing righteousness. To clear ourselves, if there is any remnant of this money's influence over you. We don't have to be evil people to recognise that money can have a strong influence over us. If we're to be clear of this love of money, its influence over us, we must pursue something else and not money. Paul advises us to pursue certain things in 1 Timothy 6 and 11. He says we're to pursue righteousness. Well, surprise, surprise, first. We're to pursue godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. He says pursue these things. Don't pursue money. To, to take a step to break the control that money has over your thinking and your mind and your way of life, we must say, I am going to stop pursuing it allowing it to dictate my life, and I'm going to be busy pursuing something else. Pursuing 
righteousness. It's not enough to know something. We have to take action to break the power of something over our lives. If you want to pursue love, take this as an example, you have to wake up every day with the thought, I am going to pursue love today. I am going to love every person I come in, come in contact with. I am to love them through actions. I am to love them in my thoughts. And you have to, you have to, it becomes painful in your head at first to pursue something. But then afterwards, the good becomes the pleasing, becomes the perfect to pursue things. So we have to pursue righteousness. You will determine what that means. To break this pursuit, this pursuit for money, I have to pursue something else and I have to actively do it to break its control. You have to lease yourself, you see, from a control. It has a control because it's a spirit of mammon. It's a spirit. And while you don't take any action, it will control your life. It will dictate to you. Refuse then to be a slave any longer to money and give yourself totally, physically, to God. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.